We thank you that you love us. You know us. You know what's going on in our lives. You know where we need encouragement. You know where we need challenge even. And Lord, you know that many of us struggle when it comes to prayer. And so we pray as we spend time in Paul's prayer, Paul's first prayer to the Ephesians here, that you would captivate us afresh, that we might long to spend more time with you in prayer, knowing the kind of things that we ought to pray for. Soften our hearts and shape us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here last week, or if you've been able to catch up, or even if you know Ephesians um, 1, 1 to 14 well, what do you do with truths like that? Those truths that we, we dug so deeply into last week. I know it was dense, there was loads in there, it felt like we were kind of unpacking suitcases and all kinds of words that we could easily spend a, a whole series on. But what do you do with those kinds of realities? What are they for? Do you remember that Paul unpacked the father who selects a people for himself, the, the son who secures them and the spirit who seals them? And, and we saw we were in two places at once. We were in Oxford or in Ephesus, but also in Christ. And this fact that we can lose track of the in Christ bit because we get so captivated with being in Oxford or in wherever we live. And Oxford seems to loom so large over us and Everyone else seems to have life sorted and we can end up feeling a bit wobbly and a bit overwhelmed. And my question is, what do you do with, with the truths like that? This week we see what Paul did with it. And the simple answer is this, he prayed. He prayed. And it's been my prayer this week that off the back of these truths from last week, we would end up being prayers like Paul, these truths would, would so penetrate our hearts that they would actually shape how we pray, the kind of things that we pray for. And so because of the truths he's unpacked last week, he prays for them. But actually, it's more than that as well. He prays for them because of the evidence of God's grace in their lives as well. Have a look down verse 15. It's especially that he, he prays in light of their faith in the Lord Jesus... And of their love for all his people. And actually we saw some of that last time. We saw they had faith because they had been included in Christ when they believed. Verse 13. Do you remember the end of last week? The, the message of truth. The gospel of their salvation. And actually we, if we have eyes to see. There were hints of their love for each other as well. As you went through. Beginning to get to grips with what a united church looks like. Jewish and Gentile believers. Both having received grace from God. Both trying to work out how do we live in a way that's peaceful with each other, that shows something of the power of the gospel. So evidence of grace of God at work in them as well. That's why he prays for them. But what does he actually pray for? Well, I think there are two big overarching pegs, if you like. Um, the first peg is quite short. The second one has got three mini pegs underneath it. Um, so don't be scared if you think we're going to finish after ten minutes. Don't worry. I'll go on for a while. Um, so first of all, what does he do? He prays for them. He tells them that he prays for them. And then he tells them what, they, what he prays for them as well. Um, let's get into the prayer, though. He prays that they would know God better. He prays that they would know God better. And that's there in verse 17. 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I wonder, would you say you're somebody who knows God? Maybe you're here just checking things out. You, perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or you're not quite sure where you stand, or maybe you thought you were, but you're not sure. Would you say you're somebody who actually knows God? It's right, in our days, we need to define our terms. What do we mean by God? Um, at times like this, in a, in a place like this, Spiritual times, in many ways, people are keen to kind of have a mashed together sort of spirituality that suits them. So it's like you're, you're doing Phil's recipe for the cake, and rather than following instructions, you just sort of add a bit of this and a bit of that, and I'll try a bit of bicarb and some baking powder and a bit of sugar and some chocolate and, and maybe some sardines as well and see what comes out. And, and it's what, does, what is God like for you is the kind of question that we sometimes hear. What do we mean by God? Why doesn't that idea of the recipe work from this verse? Well, have a look down. It's Who is he praying to? It's the God who's revealed himself. This isn't the kind of God that we can shape and mould and fashion into the kind of God we want him to be, but one who has shown himself to us. It's not a game of hide and seek. So see verse 17, it's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we are praying to the God who has acted decisively in history. In that he's revealed himself in Jesus. The second person of the Trinity takes on flesh. And if you're in the right place at the right time, you could see him and speak to him and touch him. And it's this Jesus in whom we have a new identity. And all the blessings that we spoke of last week. It's this Jesus in whom we are as we're joined by faith to him, as we trust him. But then more than that, he's the glorious father as well. Do you see that? I love that little phrase, the glorious father. There's, there's the glory in that he's beautiful and powerful and amazing and awesome. And yet he's father, he's personal. He's kind, he's good. Which means as we pray to him, we pray, we pray to one who is both able, because he's glorious and powerful, but he's willing because he's father, he's good, and he loves to give good gifts to his children. This is the God whom we pray to. We can't just make him up and sort of mash together different ideas that we would like, but actually he's shown us what he's like. And what does he ask? Well, he asks that the Holy Spirit living in them, this seal, this deposit from last time, do you remember, would help them to know the true God better. been around for a while at church if you've been around churches for a while if you've been a christian for for a while i could be wrong but i'm not sure we pray that kind of thing very often anymore it maybe we think that's for the sort of the new christian the christian in the nursery who's who's just come through a christianity explored or just um started to trust jesus for themselves and we'll pray that they would know god better because you know they're brand new but then Actually, we think we sort of reach, perhaps we think we reach a kind of level where we don't really need that so much. And yet this is a prayer for all kinds of Christians. And it's not just in more information and more data type prayer. 
not just having the facts that we can have information to file away because we've listened to all the podcasts and we've, we've got books and books and books of sermon notes and wow, look at it. And we know the right answers in Bible study, but, but it's the knowledge of God that means we know him better. It's relationship. I was reflecting this week. If you've not read um, Jim Packer's classic book, Knowing God, read it. Go find it secondhand somewhere on Marketplace or something. But it's, it's extraordinary. It's 40, 50 years old, I think, and, and it is still so incredibly prophetic now. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. But he asks that question about how do you turn this, this idea of kind of knowing about God to knowing to God, knowing God himself. And he says this, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matterful meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So the information that we get about him, as we perhaps grasp a bit more about his character, or we understand a passage in the scriptures better, or it's not just sort of information we file away somewhere on the shelf, but actually we chew it over and meditate on it, and then we, we praise him for it, and we pray about it. Wouldn't it be extraordinary to be a church that, to be Christians that, that pray that we might know God better if we've been Christians for five minutes or 55 years or however long it is? That in the midst of the messiness and the chaos of normal life, the pain of life, that we would actually know him with us. And that if there are new things that we learn, which there always will be because we never get to the bottom of who God is, it's a lifelong process, isn't it? Then, then these ideas, these, these facts, wouldn't just be things that we file away, but they would be points that push us to him in praise and in prayer. So Paul prays they might know God better. That's our first peg. The second one is that he prays that they would know God's blessings better. And I think there are three things here that kind of flow down from this as he, as he longs for the spirit of wisdom and revelation, as he puts it. He prays for their spiritual eyesight. And he prays firstly for the hope to which he's called us. The hope to which he's called us. It's interesting, isn't it? He's given thanks for their faith. He's given thanks for their love. And yet so often with Paul, you get the faith, the hope and the love. And so maybe they've lost sight of their hope. Maybe they've, they've lost track of where they're going. And so their hope is something that he wants them to grasp more of. Phil's already reminded us. But 1 verse 10 is a key verse in um, Ephesians. It's, it shows us where history is going. It's to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth together under Christ. It's the final page of the story. It's every knee bowing. It's all of creation acknowledging Jesus is Lord. And do you remember, maybe the temple of Artemis does loom large over them in Ephesus. And it looms large, not just physically, but it looms large in their hearts. And they're wondering about waving the white flag. Maybe, maybe we can't keep going. Maybe it's just too hard. Maybe it's too hard to be a follower of Jesus in a place like this, perhaps they're saying. And so Paul says, I'm praying for your hope. 
I'm praying you would grasp onto that hope that is yours in Christ. Hope that you will know where you're going and hope that you will know it's worth keeping going. How's your hope? After, what is it, 18, 19, 20 months of mess and lockdowns and fear and anxiety and... Do you know 1 verse 10 is still true. There is still a bigger story going on. History still has a goal. All things are being worked together to bring about their completion under Christ. And we can trust him for that. That doesn't mean life will be easy. That doesn't mean there won't be suffering and pain and tears. But it does mean we know where it's going and so we know we have a hope. We need God's help, don't we, to cling on to that hope at times. In the mess and the confusion, to keep a hold of it. We live in a very short-termist world and all our senses are taking up with with what we can see in front of us and what's going on this week and what's in the diary and, and things that stress us out and things that excite us and... And yet when we remember 1 verse 10, when we know what the future holds, then we know what matters now. And some of us are planners. We love to plan. We love our to-do lists and our tick boxes. And maybe those plans are limited, though, to the career ladder, to the next 30 years, to your plan for your life, your hope, your dreams, your or plans for the house, or plans for the family, or but, but maybe not so much plans in light of eternity. So often our plans are to, doing, to do with being in Oxford rather than being in Christ. And it seems to me the culture that we find ourselves in at this point, and, and it kind of trickles in and it shapes the church, means that we, we avoid talking about true hope. We avoid talking about eternity. We avoid the bigger picture questions. You know, it's not that kind of conversation you would plan to have on the bus or even with close friends. And yet here Paul seems to be praying that they would get it. They would know the hope to which they've been called and it would, it would shape them. Because when you know what the future holds, you know what matters now. Again, maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're not sure and you, you wouldn't, you definitely don't think Jesus is coming back. That just sounds weird. Or maybe you are a Christian and sometimes you find it hard to believe that. Well, stay with me. Because I think Paul will show us why we can trust that hope. His reason seems to be because God is powerful and because he raised Jesus from the dead. And you know, when Paul was writing whenever it was, sometime early 60s perhaps, 30 or so years after Jesus was raised again, there may well have been people around at that time who, who saw him. And so they would know that God was powerful because they saw a man called Jesus who, who died on the cross and, and three days later was raised again. And as Paul would say to the church in Corinth, up to 500 saw him at once. So, Morden Road, let's pray that we would be a hopeful church. 
not in a kind of naive, everything's going to be okay type way, but actually that that hope that we know that we have is ours in Christ would shape how we do life now, would shape the things that we love, shape the things that we care about, shape the things that we, we spend our time doing and how we fill our diaries and what we spend our money on. And But let's pray that we don't lose sight of the hope that is ours in Christ. So there's the first little peg of the second big peg. The second one seems to be, he prays that they would know the riches of God's inheritance. The riches of God's inheritance, which, which sounds fine until you start thinking, what does that mean? What's actually going on there? It's a slightly weird phrase. I think our translation, if you've got an NIV 2011, we don't have Bibles, do we, at the moment because of COVID. Anyway, if you've got your phone and you can go to NIV 2011, I think it's really helpful. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. I think that is really helpful. We'll see why in a moment. I think they get it right. One of the things we spoke about last week is that from 1 to 14, one thing that Paul seems to be doing is is rewriting the story of God's people. So he's picking up ideas, pictures, stories from the Old Testament God's people in the Old Testament, and he's showing how Jesus is the fulfilment of those stories, showing how they pointed to him. And so here's the thing. The people whom God chose, and he rescued them from Egypt and took them through the promised land, to the promised land, through the wilderness and all the stuff in Exodus we've seen, those people were always to be his inheritance. Those people were to be his inheritance. They belonged to him. Listen to um, Deuteronomy 4, verse 20, for example. Remember Deuteronomy on the borders of the promised land, Moses reproclaiming God's laws to them for this context. And he says to them, he said, The Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. It blows your mind. God's people have always been his inheritance. And so Paul prays that they might grasp the riches of his glorious inheritance, his holy people. He's praying that they would know how incredibly valuable they are. The worth that God places upon them as his people. And so I think in context, and I think as this kind of opens up the letter, this prayer, I think he's wanting them to live up to the calling that they have. That that is Jew and Gentile together. They are, you are God's inheritance. You are his possession. Don't, don't be divided. Because look at how precious you are. That's why in chapter 4 onwards you will see some of how that works out in their, their lifestyle among them as a church family. He says stop trying to undo the work of the cross by being divided. But stay unified because you are so precious. Because you are God's inheritance. Don't moan, don't squabble, don't fight. Stop these cliques and these factions and this division. Look how important you are. So grasp the hope. You would know the inheritance that they are. But then thirdly, he prays that they might know the the power for us who believe. The power for us who believe. I won't ask you to close your eyes. A few of you seem to have already. No, you've not, that's fine. But imagine with me, as far as you can, that you are in first century Ephesus. 
can't speak. We thought about it last week. It's a prosperous town centre. You've got traders, you've got ships, you've got roads, you've got, you've got money. Looks like quite a nice place. And you've got the impressive um, Temple of Artemis in the middle as well, the centre of the city. She was the goddess of fertility and power. We'll have more for her in weeks to come. But another thing that you might see as you look around is evidence of their belief in magic. It was an occult centre. It was famous for it. There were mystery cults, there was astrology, sorcery, exorcisms, magical arts. It was that kind of a place. Maybe not far from some of what we find in East Oxford, let's be honest. Ephesus was known for it. And so power, power is a really big deal in Ephesus. This little church is surrounded by powers. Maybe they felt weak and they felt vulnerable. Maybe they felt overshadowed. And so suddenly we see what Paul maybe is doing in verse 19. He's He's showing them what real power looks like. And more than just showing them what it looks like, he wants them to to see that they have it. If there's a league of powers, they are at the absolute top because they are in Christ. Verse 19-21. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. See that power? It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Not just an idea, not just a hypothesis, or, you know, metaphorically he was raised from the dead. No, He was raised from the dead. And it's the power that seats him above every other power at the right hand of the Father. It it shows God's immense power to recreate the world, the first fruits of all that is to come. And those raised in Christ, the start of the new creation, and those that will, will be raised in him. And so it's a power that starts now and it's a power that goes on in the age to come. Verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And if you're a tiny little church in the midst of a place of real power, imagine what those verses sound like. Imagine the comfort of those words. You see, God's power in raising Jesus has been given for a purpose, and the purpose is for the church. Isn't God just kind of flexing and showing off, and I'm pretty cool? But God's power to bring about his purposes through his church. A little church like a church in Ephesus. A little church like a church in East Oxford. So you're in the pew. You're in the pew and this letter is being read out. There's an excitement. And Paul's words drift into your ears from the leader at the front of whoever read it. Maybe you've got your family who are still into magic and incantations. Maybe you've got neighbours next door and it's their thing and it always has been and they look down on you because you've turned your back on it and you've turned to Christ. Well, know for now that they are subject to Christ. 
This little church isn't just some new insignificant cult, but made up of participants in the heavenly reign of God. Christ is head over everything, verse 22. But only the church is his body. Christ fills everything in every way, verse 23. But only the church is his fullness. As we finish, let me encourage you to pray. To pray for those sat around you. To pray for other church members, for people in... Um, Oak Room and Ash Room and online. But maybe, maybe we don't feel like we know God that much. Maybe indeed we know a lot of Bible and we know a lot of theology and we know a lot of facts and we've read lots of books, but we don't feel like we know him that much. Well, let's pray as a church that we would know him more closely and more dearly in, in all the mess and the joys of daily life. It may be we feel pretty hopeless. Actually, maybe these last 20 months have really taken it out of you. Let's, let's pray that the hope that we've been let in on, 1 verse 10, that that would shape how we live now. That knowing the end would bring comfort for now. Maybe we've lost sight of how much we mean to God. Well, let's pray that we would grasp more of what it means that we are his inheritance. And maybe we do feel pretty weak, insignificant, fearful, powerless. Well, let's pray that we would know that Jesus reigns. That he is risen and he reigns. And all other powers bow to him. And indeed, we have that power in us. Because of his spirit, which raised him from the dead. Let's pray now. We pray for those of us who don't feel like we know you very much. Maybe we feel like we know lots about you, but we don't actually know you. And so we pray, please, help those facts, those ideas, those truths, those realities, those good things. Help them to come alive, that we might see how much of a glorious and beautiful and good God you are. You are our Father in heaven. Lord, we're sorry for when we just, we just get the facts and we do nothing with it. Please captivate our heart afresh. We long to know you more. We pray for those of us who feel pretty hopeless. Maybe we've got so caught up in being in Oxford that we've forgotten what it means to be in Christ. We've forgotten where the story's going and we've got muddled so in what matters now. Please help the reality and hope of the future that is ours in Christ, please help that to shape now. Not just in theory, but in reality. Help it to make a difference on Monday morning. 
And we're blown away by the fact that we are your inheritance. Your people have always been your inheritance. And we confess we forget that. We confess we struggle to believe that. We confess that sometimes we don't live like that. And we're sorry. Again, would that truth shape this week? Shape this coming term? And we confess we can feel pretty weak and powerless and fearful and insignificant. And so we pray that we might know that Jesus reigns. We might trust that he reigns. But more than that, we might know that power at work in us by your spirit. Help us to be diligent, to be generous in praying these things for each other. Help this not just to be an idea for a Sunday morning, but shape us that we might be an increasingly prayerful church. Thank you that Paul prays for them. He tells them he's prayed for them. and Indeed, he tells them what he prays for them. Lord, might we be the kind of church where that happens too? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.